They are elementary doctrines that stay with us all of our lives. They are things that we should know, that should be so much a part of our thought process, in fact so deeply embedded in us that they may not even arise to the conscious level. It's just how we will react or what we know to do in particular situations. These elementary doctrines uh, established for us in the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews. They include repentance from acts that lead to death, faith toward God, baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. It's like these are the fabric, these, these are woven within the fiber of our understanding as, as believers. You see, our faith is not based upon irrational uh, or human-originated process. We're born again, and we're born into eternal life. The Holy Spirit gives our spirits life, and we become new creations in Christ. That being so, our way of life is very different from how humans ordinarily live. These elementary doctrines are about the, the elemental fabric of this new way of life and being. And just as, say, citizens of a particular country, we know about the history and the customs and the culture of that country, and we were raised in these things, and they become as though it were second nature to us. We, we instinctively revert to these points of view. In the same way, being a believer, we are born of a different country, as it were. Not of a human country or physical country, but of an eternal origin. And these elementary things are very basic to how we see ourselves and what we do, what we know, what we understand, and how we are identified in this new way, being this new, new sort of creature. We've looked at all of the in order in which in the order in which they've appeared we have looked at the elementary doctrines and now we're at the point of considering the doctrine of the laying on of hands now that's something that seems almost archaic it seems almost out of keeping with the culture and the customs of our present time but the laying on of hands is a very, very central part of the life of a believer. And that is to have hands laid on you for various things. Now, there are a number of things in Scripture that are accomplished through the laying on of hands. First off, the laying on of hands, that is people, believers, other believers laying hands on you, uh, is at times done to confirm things in you. Sometimes to release you to various things. Sometimes to hands are laid on you for healing and so on. So that this laying on of hands by itself is very much a foundational thing. 
I'd like for us to begin by looking at some of the things that are facilitated through the laying on of hands. And I'd like to take, in a sense, I'd like to jump right in and take sort of the big picture approach. In the kingdom of God, the laying on of hands appears to be in scripture for two basic reasons. There are other reasons, but the two principal reasons are to confirm who you are in the Lord and to commission you or to send you. They're two separate things, though at times they may occur at the same time. For example, if you're being both confirmed and sent. But sometimes you're not being sent anywhere or you're not being released to something but the thing that you are is being acknowledged and it's being confirmed. Now, let's look at some examples of this in the scriptures, just to establish it. And then what we will do is uh, explain why. First, let's look at Acts 13. Here it is said that In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And it names five of them, including Barnabas and Saul. Now, in approaching this passage, let me ask you this question. When do you think Paul, Saul, became an apostle? The answer typically is on the road to Damascus. But you will not find an example of Paul being called an apostle before the 14th chapter of the book of Acts. He was saved, selected, called to God uh, on the road to Damascus, later baptized. But for 14 years he disappears. Then he surfaces again in the 12th chapter of Acts. And now we see him after a year in residence In Antioch, we catch up with him in Acts 13. Now, he's numbered here among these five, and it says, while they, these five, including uh, Barnabas and Saul, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit had a work for them to do. So after they, the five, had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now after this, it says, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and they go through uh, places like um, Cyprus and, uh, and, and so on. Now in Acts 14, we will find this, Acts 14.5. It says, the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. That's Acts 14.4, not 5. Now, this is the first reference to Paul as an apostle. Now what exactly happened here? How did he go from being whatever he was to being an apostle? Well, what was he before? 
Look back at chapter 13, verse 1. Acts 13, 1. In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And it names five of them, including Barnabas and Saul. So until this time, he's not referred to as an apostle. He's referred to as either a prophet or a teacher. Now, he has never elsewhere referred to himself as a prophet. But he has elsewhere referred to him, himself as a teacher. So we know that at least here, he was referred to as a teacher. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, that's when the Holy Spirit said, Separate for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So that's the first time that we actually see that there is a particular calling of Saul and he is supposed to be sent on his way as an apostle. In that sense, you may find yourself functioning in one capacity or another until a designated time when the Holy Spirit decides it's time both to reveal your calling to you and to release you into that calling. When that moment arrived for Paul, it was while he was here in Antioch, and up to until that time, he had been functioning as a prophet or a teacher or both. But then the Holy Spirit said, separate him from the rest of them, separate two of them from the rest of them. And what happened then was that hands were laid on them, presumably the other three laid hands on them to confirm that they were being separated out from what they used to be, confirm what it was that, that they had become, or that the Holy Spirit had declared that they were, and then they were released to go into the work to which they were called, which was, of course, the work of apostles. Now, this is not a unique or, or singular experience in the scriptures relative to somebody working in a certain capacity and then the time came for the Holy Spirit to establish them in something else, in what they had become. Another example of this is found in, at the end of the 16th chapter of the book of Acts and it concerns a young apostle whose name was Timothy. All right, now, let's begin by seeing what was the commissioning of Timothy. In the 16th chapter of Acts, at verse 1, Paul, after his breakup with Barnabas over the question of uh, John Mark's accompanying them on the second journey, uh, he now comes to Derby and to Lystra to look, essentially, to look for the replacements for both Mark and Barnabas. And uh, he will find two men, Timothy and, and um, uh, Silvanius, who is also known as Silas. And these would be the replacements, Timothy for John Mark, and apparently Silvanius for Barnabas, or Silas for Barnabas. So when Paul is in this process, he comes to Derby and to Lystra, and that's where we find him in Acts 16.1. 
where a certain disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, and whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so they circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area and so on. And then it goes on to say that they were sent out from these regions of Derby and Lystra. Now, let me show you that Paul, uh, that uh, Timothy was an apostle. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the writer of the book, or shall I say the writers, plural, of the book, were established. Verse 1 of chapter 1, the writers are stated, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy. So we're following on as a logical sequence from Acts 16, where the company is formed and they're going out. And they've gone to the Thessalonians, they've worked with them, and now they're writing a letter to them. So in chapter 1, verse 2, when the reference is, we always thank God for all of you, the we there would be Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now, in chapter 2, verse 6, we find this statement. We were not looking for praise from men. Who are the we? Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Nor from anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. But we were gentle to you like a mother with her children. Now, who are the apostles of Christ? Obviously the writers, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So, they began their work as apostles, and they continued their work as apostles. Now, how do we get to that? How do we see all of that? Paul writes to Timothy, both in the first letter and in the second letter. And he says to him, he says, I write to you, Timothy, in both chapters 1 and uh, in, verse, in the first letter to Timothy and the second letter to Timothy, he says, I write to you to fan into flames the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And then he says, I write to you to, fa- I, I, to stir up the gift of God that's in you through the laying on of my hands, in both the first letter and the second letter. Now, what exactly happened? Well, Timothy was in, in these two cities, Lystra and Derby, working in those cities. He was known among the elders of those cities as a faithful worker. But then, Paul came through and was looking for a traveling companion to replace uh, Mark and to replace Barnabas. And he found both Timothy and uh, um, uh, Silas. And this company is formed and they go out. But filling in the blanks from Paul's own letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, we come up with the, with the clarity of what happened. Paul was looking for his traveling companions. The elders of both cities recommended Timothy. And in the company of Paul, 
there was a prophetic utterance declaring that Timothy was an apostle. We've looked in 1 Thessalonians and seen, and we've seen that he was an apostle. So his gift is declared by a prophetic utterance according to Paul. And then first the elders and then together with Paul laid hands on him and sent him off onto the journey. The, 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 the point of the laying on of hands then is a confirmation of who Timothy was and a release of Timothy into the work to which God had called him. So it's the same picture with Paul as it was with Timothy. That is, they were doing something else. The moment arose when in the timing of the Lord it was time for them to be confirmed in their calling as apostles So there was a prophetic utterance in both cases, both in Paul's case and in Timothy's case, prophetic utterance, and it was followed by the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands then was a confirmation of the prophetic utterance by those who already knew what the nature of the work of Paul and Timothy was. So this is an important truth about the laying on of hands. You do not lay hands on someone and by that you make them some, into something. Before you lay hands on anyone or before hands are laid on someone, first the nature of the work that they're doing should be apparent. It should be clear. Secondly, those who lay hands on, on that person should be familiar with the work of that person. And then finally, when hands are laid, it is the declaration by those persons of what they know to be true about the work and the calling of this individual. In this way, we're not conferring some benefit on on another, nor are we applying favoritism in selecting whom we please to be whatever we want them to be. The laying on of hands, therefore, must be in light of the known work of that person upon whom hands are being laid. It is therefore a matter of confirmation by many of who the one is, or even the confirmation by another of who that person is. In that way, we're not simply applying favoritism, nor are we, applying, uh, uh, nor are we selecting people to fit our version of their tasks. It is in fact recognizing a greater trend. That trend is that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, that he sent the Holy Spirit to endow his people with gifts of his authority. The evidence that you've been called to be who you are is the function, is the way that you function in light of who God made you to be. So if, for example, someone is going around winning people to the Lord, the likelihood is that they're called to evangelize. Well, before you lay hands on someone and name them an evangelist, what must have preceded them? The evidence that the the distribution of Jesus' authority to them by the Holy Spirit is manifested in terms of what they do. So if someone 
has been evangelizing, you know that by the will of God they were made to be an evangelist, that the Holy Spirit has empowered them to evangelize, and the fruit is that they actually win people to the Lord. When all of those things are in place, then the confirmation that comes is to establish who they are in the Lord. Now, as in the case of both Timothy and Titus, what we see is that they were doing the work before hands were laid on them, but also we see that having done the work for a sufficiently long period of time, it was now time for them to leave a certain location and go out beyond their borders. Or it was time for them to leave a particular context and move into another. When it's time to do that, the laying on of hands is also for the purpose of commissioning and releasing. So in the first case, the laying on of hands is for the purpose of confirmation that that gift actually is in this person or that this person is actually who he is or who he says he is in the Lord. That's the testimony of those who observe the fruit of their labors and on the basis of that can concur that this is who they are by the will of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit. They've been endowed with the sufficient power from on high so that they can be that. One of the strange things is how often is the case that people who have been doing the work for a very long time have never been confirmed, let alone released to it. Part of the reason for this is in the present church hierarchy, there's only room for the pastor. There's only room for those leaders who have charge. And that's because the present church culture is largely about maintaining the structure and the order of that culture first and foremost. The kingdom of God, however, is very different from this. In the kingdom, leadership exists for the benefit of the people. And the point of leadership is that they are supposed to raise up the people with the expectation that the gift of God in them and the call of God upon their lives will come to that place of sufficient maturity so that they can first be confirmed as a result of the faithful work that has been done, and then subsequently they can also be released. You know, that's how you come to be in, in ministry. Ministry is not the result of your having gone and spent years in college preparing for it, because the ministry that you are to do is the work of the Holy Spirit being done in you, and the work of the Holy Spirit being done through you. And the preparation for that is your faithful response to the leading of the Holy Spirit. When you've done that over a period of time, you become versed in functioning in this way. When that is true, then as in the case of Timothy, the elders and an apostle ought to lay hands on you and release you to your calling, when you do, an anointing greater than what you used to have will come upon you. And the accompanying that anointing will come an attack, because the enemy wants to stop you while you are just getting started. That attack will fail, as it inevitably does, but when the attack fails, yet the anointing that's on you will abide. 
And that's how you come to a greater level of glory, a greater level of maturity and functionality in the kingdom of God. The, the, the doctrine then of the laying on of hands is, for a number of reasons, the two reasons we've covered in this particular broadcast are for confirmation and for release. We've seen in a previous broadcast that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is also conferred by the laying on of hands. And we've mentioned that healing is done when the elders meet and pray over you, anoint you with oil, lay hands on you, forgive your sins, and then the Lord, by his choosing, heals you. The doctrine of the laying on of hands, then, is of great importance, and its restoration to the body of Christ cannot be too soon. When the enemy accuses you, that which stands is the fact that you've been confirmed in the Lord as to who you are and what you are. I'm Sam Solon. God bless you, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.